You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 135, Collaborations and Ethical Decision-Making. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we sure have been studying the issues the last couple of episodes, and this is the third in the three-part series on ethics with uh, Deputy Chief Derek Marsh, and uh, he's been really helping us to uh, study these issues and uh, so we can all be a voice and make more of a difference, and particularly in the framework of the class that's being offered in the certificate program. Our human trafficking and ethics course is launching in January, and it's part of a 12-unit online certificate in human trafficking um, work. And part of the description says students will improve their ability to initially meet victims, perpetrators, colleagues, and impacted agencies from their unique value systems, motivations, and patterns of thinking and behaving. And our expert on this in the studio is our guest, Deputy Chief Derek Marsh, retired from Westminster PD. He has um, an MA in human behavior. That makes me nervous because he can read me, an MPA in police management and leadership. And one of the things that I particularly value about his leadership is his focus on ethics. And it's been evident in our long relationship serving on the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force together, and also since he's been adjunct faculty at Vanguard University in 2009. So we're going to jump right in. Welcome back to the show, Chief. Thanks for having me yet again. Yes, and I'm sure that um, uh, if you have just are tuning in to this week's, you're going to want to go back to week one and week two in this series. Um, so collaboration and ethical decision making. Why, why would I need to really worry about how that works? Well, um, and we'll... To recap just a little bit of what happened last week so we keep the continuity to some degree, uh, we talked about the different ethical decision-making strategies that you can use, the different models that are out there. And again, not an exhaustive view by any chance, but just an overview enough to really put our feet on the ground and, you know, like from that applied ethics perspective, make things happen and make things realistic and make them pragmatic and practical. And I think that we talked a little bit, and again, we'll talk more about it in depth today, about the different layers that we're going through we're talking about ethics and values and morals and value systems and how we apply them. And on one level, you have that personal, you know, how you grew up, your perspectives on that, how you think, how you value. You have on another level, the agency you're representing and their values. And I hopefully there's some, some degree of fit usually, you know, for some degree, uh, whether it's law enforcement or whatever type agency you belong to that you're representing and where you're in a collaboration and finally have a collaboration level where you're interacting with different agencies with these different agendas, if you will, and trying to keep the language on the same level so your communication is more 
uh, focused and more effective, but also be able to share that your goals are where you want where you want to end up in the long run when you're treating human trafficking situations, victims, suspects, survivors, other agencies, uh, federal agencies, things like that. Uh, we're all sharing the same language so we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we get a new group who wants to participate in human trafficking. Okay, so so when we bring together a, a, a group of professionals and um, they come from very different perspectives, that how what what are some of the kinds of collaborations we can expect to see? Well, I would say if you're looking at collaborations, and again, this is... Um, this is one, again, one way of looking at them as many, I suppose. I think of them on a kind of uh, continuum, if you will. You would, and this is from, by the way, a book by James Austin called The Collaboration Challenge. It's written in 2000. And he he really breaks things down into three different levels. There's a philanthropic, excuse me, uh, level of collaboration, a more transactional and an integrative. And what I mean by philanthropic it's usually doesn't require a lot of fit between the different agent agencies that are, are collaborating. It's usually for a fixed purpose, you know, usually for some kind of charitable event you normally or some type of specific event you're working on together. Uh, you have representatives that kind of interact, not necessarily agency heads per se. You don't have to mesh your value systems for the most part. You're just on a short term, sometimes it's periodic, maybe every year or every six months, something where you're performing some activity together and then you go your separate ways and, that's all the level of impact you have on that philanthropic type of level. Now, on a transaction level, things get a little bit more interactive where you're probably working with them on a week-to-week level. You have kind of a partnering mindset that you're, you know, you are partners, you're working together towards mutual goals. Um, you may even have some occurrences of personal relationships where people are building relationships between organizations. Uh, you're, again, you're meeting more frequently which I think is a big part of trying to understand each other's culture and each other's value systems and where those are coming from. And again, there, there's an exchange, if you will, of core competencies. The victims, to make an example, you know, with a law enforcement agency, our core competency obviously is to, to go out in the community and try to help create a safe and secure environment through, you know, justice enforcement issues and also through interacting with the community. And so we take those core competencies and we move and we share those with, let's say, a community uh, group that focuses on victim advocacy. And so we're working, and obviously we've come across several victims as along, along the way of our, mm-hmm. our work. And so they're there to help supplement what we do because we're not always frontline social workers. Uh, and so we don't have that training or expertise. So these people mesh together with us to try to get a common goal of having a more holistic approach to community service, uh, law enforcement, and victim services as well. So there's that transactional. It's it's um, it's kind of like in the middle of that continuum, if you will. If you were to take the philanthropic on the, from the left or whatever side you want to go from, uh, the transactional being in the middle, and finally you have like an integrative work where you really are working together with these people on a daily basis. Maybe they're housed in your facility, or you're housed in their facility, or both. Uh, there are a lot of personal relationships that have been established across both agencies or multiple agencies. You go from a we mentality versus actually you go to a we mentality. From us versus them, you know. So you're, mm. you're you're crossing that kind of line, and the agencies are almost kind of mixing, if you will. You're going to have some shared. You're definitely having a lot of shared goals at that point, um, and they're, the agencies become more complementary, and they're working together. And I would, in my world, when I was at Westminster, I would say that would be with our community service programs, mm-hmm. and that who's not it's not being run by Renee Johnson, 
who's our, over there and Lita Mercado with our human trafficking in the sense that we they'd been embedded with us for 30, 35 years. And mm. so we were so used to them being around that there was no feeling that they were trying to take over our cheese. They were, you know, no one was trying to usurp anybody else. We were in there for a mutual benefit to satisfy both our agencies. And, and, and every county or state has a different yeah. way of providing victim services with their local law enforcement. Ours exactly. just happens to be community service programs. Correct. But it's an, and again, I use them as an example because that's what we were experienced right. with, obviously. But I see these types of relationships going across the board, across the country. And mm-hmm. obviously, obviously internationally, when we've gone to travel and, gone to Italy, we've gone to Romania, we've gone to Argentina, right. and we see how the law enforcement and these different service providers are able to find mutual ground together and work together consistently um, to achieve mutual ends when okay. it comes to human trafficking. So that's that integrative, that's a, that's really, if you're looking at it, it's kind of the goal you're looking for if you want to have a sustainable task force you need that integrative collaboration that's going to really make it work and make it move forward and achieve what you needed to achieve. Well, and, and in this collaborative model, um, there's some new terminology uh, that has been difficult for me to explain, but I think it it begins to emerge out of this concept, and that's the term enhanced collaborative model. Uh, can you kind of comment on that before we look into um, the specific human trafficking collaboration partners. Sure. Well, and I think it really comes from like the model that was being used from the federal government, the three P's, when you're looking at protection, prevention, and prosecution, up until about 2009, 2010, that was the model that you would write a grant and you would become a federally uh, funded task force based off of. And while everyone understood there was a collaboration or a partnership element to it, it wasn't explicitly mentioned there. So we had a lot of task forces, unfortunately, that well, some of them got along well, and the rest of it, there was always a, there were still some complaints about the victim services didn't understand the law enforcement, law enforcement didn't understand victim services, the faith-based community may be excluded completely, healthcare wasn't really included all the time like they should be, educational facility or, or groups or agencies weren't being included, survivors weren't being included. So the federal government, I think wisely so, created a fourth P, that partnership issue, and relabeled the task force to be enhanced collaborative models that they had to show this integrative approach to the collaboration to justify funding because that meant that funding was going towards perpetuating and sustaining a viable task force. And that's where that enhanced came in, that whole partnership, that whole collaboration that a lot lacked. And and to show you what a disparity there was, there was a time when there were 42 task forces we're actually climbing back up to that now, but back in the, you know back around 2009, around 42 task forces were the mass, the federally funded in the U.S. around 2009, 2010, and then it just dropped to we had an all-time low of one year only having three, mm. and so there there's there's a huge gap there to show how important it was to maintain that integrative, collaborative, uh, sustainable model to make sure that not only did you get funding from the feds, which is also always a good thing, but also to have a sustainable task force that went beyond funding and they kept pursuing human trafficking even when the funding from the federal source or state force or wherever dried up to show that that mutual commitment was still there. From Much more sustainable. Absolutely, and, it's, and, that's, and that's what it's about because it's that group, it's that group mentality because you can't do it alone. I mean, I think we've, we've covered that before in other, you have in other podcasts with Dave, um, it's not, a, it's not an individual effort. 
mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. And the people who try to make it that way, they may get one element of that trafficking, the prosecution they may get one element, victim services, they may get one element, you know, the protection, the going out, outreach, training, whatever. But it's not a holistic approach until you've partnered with all of these other agencies that perform all those different elements to make it a viable, long-term, sustainable task force. So um, just lay out a, um, a skeleton of the partners that should be present in a human trafficking collaboration, whether it's local, state, national, or international. Well, okay, and I'll be I'll use my personal bias here, and I'll start with law enforcement. Of course you sorry. will. Of course I will, sorry. And that hats off to everyone else for being tolerant of me for doing that. Uh, but obviously we have our federal, our state, our local, our tribal, and our international agencies and I also like to include here our private security agencies because they vastly outnumber the law enforcement agencies that are sworn officers, and they're kind of ubiquitous in just about every community in the United States, and I've seen them around in other countries as well, and they're a great source of information. And while they may not go out and make actual arrests, they do have a lot of insights of what's happening in the areas for which they're responsible, whether it's from a business perspective or neighborhoods they travel and they look at. Also, and, and here we go with the real folks and, the, and you know, folk to take care of business, uh, victim service providers, I call them VSPs. Obviously, they're in their federal, state, local, and our non-government organizations that do this. They have victim advocates. They have social service agencies, you know, our Department of Family Services, those types of groups. But also, we have, these includes people who help with resident facilities, transportation, clothing issues, feeding issues, legal representation, et cetera for both our domestic and our inter- and our international or foreign national victims. Then of course we have healthcare to give a nod to your Thank you. your, your historical past there as, as an emergency room uh, nurse. Uh, and we're talking about hospitals and we're talking about urgent care centers. And we're talking about people who provide not just maybe f- physical care to people, nurses and doctors, but also psychologists and other folks that help with the psychology of the challenging of being traumatized emotionally in that way. And then, of course, there are health organizations on the federal, state, local level as well, and other practitioners that you know get involved. And that can include like dentists. That could include optometrists. Because mm, yeah. human trafficking victims don't have a great medical plan. It turns out, and and I don't mean to be make light of it, but it's that. But what I'm hoping to do is make a point that it really is important to think of these medical issues as well to help bring that person up to up to par, making them feel safe and secure, making them feel healthy enough to make good statements and, I really and appreciate be a, a that survivor. Because I'm trying to communicate to people that rescue doesn't end when you put them in a vehicle to drive them away from the site of their exploitation. Yeah, it's a continuum. And that's, again, that's part of that holistic perspective right. that we're trying to you know move forward with. Our faith-based organizations are critical with a lot of, you know, outreach and sustaining help. I mean, I know that in Orange County, we had our faith-based organizations actually go out and provide clothing and provide, you know, uh, emergency bags, if you will, or which were backpacks full of what would seem like basic, but some basic clothing, blankets, um, sometimes even stuffed animals, but also some personal hygiene issues like, you know, a comb, a brush, uh, a toothpaste, toothbrush, those types of things just to get them moving, you know, get them moving forward, you know, soap or, you know, things like that. And finally, and not definitely not last or least, are our educational groups that, again, they have our formal bureaucracy agencies that are ranged from the federal, international, local, whatever, but also we have curriculum development, maintenance. Uh, we have a lot of people who go out and do training that aren't necessarily associated with educational institution per se, but we also have our universities and our high schools that are actively involved too, whether they're online or whether they're actual physical institutions or a mixture of those. And again, I'm not coming close to listing all of the different, you know, viable, when we come to the enhanced model, we have to have survivors participate. You know, there's right. there's no way you can you can make a viable ethical code 
for human trafficking task force or collaboration and not have your survivors uh, input and understand what's going on with them. And there's also a whole group of people, we, we loosely label them volunteers, and you're trying to find, well, these people have a passion to help, but where do you place them so that their skills are best utilized in the effort towards eliminating human trafficking as well? Well, and that raises the next question then, what are the the challenges to an effective collaboration? Where do you plug people in? So what kind of process, how do you use um, your ethical decision-making process in that? Well, and that's, and it's a challenge. I mean, I, I, and here, when I come out here and I say, I have, I have the answer, please don't, don't run off and say, well, I heard it from Derek Marsh on a podcast. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Everyone's going to have a little bit different take on how things work in your world. And again, I'm not pretending I understand that necessarily. Well, I will, I will throw out there that um, we got to remember again that each agency has their own values and beliefs. Each person in those agencies has their values and beliefs. And the collaboration really needs to understand that they need to align those values so that they can work on the issue of human trafficking. That's your goal is to stop human trafficking to some degree, to help people stop being victimized by human trafficking, to put people away, all those different elements that make up a human anti-trafficking effort. Uh, and you have to make sure that as a group, that you are going to eventually have to come up with goals as a group and ethical codes or policies, if whatever you want to call them. I mean, it's I'm easy. But basically, how are we going to treat these ethical dilemmas, these right versus right dilemmas that mm-hmm. come up every day to make them work. And again, we have to understand there's always there's always kind of like a power struggle. And I don't want to make it sound like it's a Machiavellian type of deal, though it could be sometimes I've seen it, unfortunately. But where, you know, different groups have different types of powers. They have the power to act autonomously depending on what, you know, they're doing, whether they're an NGO or whether they're a law enforcement agency. Some groups have better influence over others because of their expertise, their time in, you know, doing things like I think I have I like to delude myself. I have some influence sometimes. You know, when I talk to some agencies around the country when we're discussing different options for human trafficking and labor prosecutions and things like that. And then you actually have people who have control other organizations. The federal government controls you if you're taking money from them. You know, mm-hmm. you have law enforcement that has you know an authority deal, usually legal, that says they can control certain issues. There's, there's obviously legal rights for victims, and so victim advocacy agencies have some rights, psychologists, medical professionals, all these people have different rights and responsibilities, and you have to mesh them all together. So instead of working at odds with each other and say, well, you do that, but then I'm going to do this and I'll show you, you know, uh, you have more of a, a group I'm working towards the same goals, working to achieve the same thing, we're going to do it together as opposed to doing it at odds with each other. So and that's, if I were to look at challenges, that is a group of challenges I think that are really important to mention and make sure that we are considering as we go down that the whole power dynamic that we have to like leave our, I used to say we used to use our, leave our egos at the door. Remember? Yeah. And so I said, I I didn't mean that from a personal level though that obviously that meant, you know, ego is a personal thing, but I also meant that you had to leave that agency agenda a little bit on the side. Not that you were going to ignore your agency or disservice it or, you know, minimize it or or put it off the table, but we had to come together for a purpose of anti-human trafficking and not just to make, that individual representative look good or that individual's agency look good. It was about the big win was really stopping trafficking and making an effective inroads to that. However we could do it, however agencies could contribute to that effort. Okay. So, so in a collaborative where you're trying to integrate all these different organizations and they bring all their different character 
of the organization to the table. Now we have a, <clears throat> a situation and we need to make a group decision. How do I apply the seven steps to that group decision? So that's a big question. So uh, let me look at it. You're looking at a seven steps uh, suggestion on how we can make this work. With Joseph's, Joseph's. With Josephson's model. And I would yeah. say that I wouldn't necessarily apply Josephson's model to making an organization work because though that in itself, I guess, is an ethical dilemma in a way. What I would say is what we really need to do is look is take an outside source that we can all agree upon, an outside philosophy that isn't necessarily individual agency focused and agree that those are help us clarify our goals, what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to treat people. And if we start with that from day one, then we, we minimize the need for us to go to a Joseph's model of ethical decision-making in the sense of day-to-day interactions with our collaborative partners. And I would, I would, Suggest, and again, this again, a suggestion. Not, I'm not pretending there's a rule here, but you know, back uh, in 2014, the federal government put out a strategic plan from 2013 for 2013 to 2017, in reference to uh, the taking care of victims and how how the issue should be more of a victim-centered, trauma-informed approach. And again, this is part of the the U.S. federal model of human trafficking, but is also derived from the United Nations model of human trafficking. So I feel comfortable recommending it, not just to our domestic United States listeners, but also to our international listeners, in the sense that instead of trying to come up with an ongoing ethical decision-making model that has to address every single thing we address because our goals are different and the rest of it, we settle on that as being potentially a way to focus on the entire group looking at it. So in a sense, we put away our personal agendas from the collaboration say, look, what the goals of that particular federal strategic plan for services for victims in the United States was, was they had core values. They called them coordination, collaboration, capacity building, which I don't think are, that are foreign to what we're looking for in a, in a collaboration and a coalition. I think that they had the focus, again, areas of focus were, again, the partnerships, our prosecutions, our protection, our prevention, which helped develop committees and groups to look at critical issues that are involved. And I would say even beyond that, when you're talking about partnerships, you'd also be looking at, you know, again, uh, survivors, including them with this as well, not just established agencies, you know, your your volunteers, not just, again, your your federal agencies, things that people who have been on the ground, who've experienced it, or who want to help and have certain skills that maybe the agencies don't have themselves would be difficult for them to solicit from different places. It's great to have a dentist volunteer because you don't have to solicit a bunch of dentists to try to help people, right? So that whole idea of taking what people have their skill sets and making them valuable to the cause so they have a meaningful contribution and it's also a meaningful contribution to the cause as well makes it a a win-win situation, if you will. And finally, the goals of the victim-centered trauma-informed approach and especially with um, the federal model when it came to it is like basically we're aligning efforts with what we want to do. So we want to get everyone together on the same page. We want to make improve everyone's understanding of what's happening with human trafficking and how to do it better, which I think are awesome. You know, again, another way to play. We want to expand access to services. So we serve our survivors. We serve our victims and our clients or whatever the terminology for the day happens to be that's appropriate. And finally, we want to improve outcomes. We want to reduce trafficking. We want to reduce victimization. We want to go out there and re- reduce the number of people who are actually perpetuating this crime and perpetuating these criminal organizations. So... Not to say that Josephson's seven-point model wouldn't work from the sense of 
putting a collaboration together. But if we spent our time doing that all the time, I think we would be challenged to actually have a sustainable task force because we'd be so riddled with these questions of how are we going to get along? What are some common terms? And what are our common goals as we're working through things? I'm really glad you brought up the Federal Strategic Action Plan because it is an exceptional example of interagency collaboration. There were 15 federal agencies that were partners in putting that plan, five-year plan together, and they agreed on terminology. They explained when terminology didn't always um, service well because, as you mentioned, law enforcement has different terminology and victim services have different terminology. So being prepared in a collaboration to understand that and many of us from the victim service side um, just bristle when someone calls a 17-year-old a juvenile prostitute. But in some areas of, of our country and in other nations, the only way to provide services for them legally is is through those those um, case management numbers and other kinds of of policy and and procedures that are used. So alignment became one of the most important aspects of building that strategic action plan. And we even did, um, we did a podcast, we'll put a link to that on that plan. And our 2015 Insure Justice Conference was around those three C's that you mentioned already, coordinate, collaborate, capacity, and we added a fourth C of compassion. And building a place to intersect with the community in a way that demonstrates your compassion, no matter what your expertise and resources are, such as the dentist that you have mentioned um, a couple of times. That is, that's where our collaboration actually um, is like a force, um, force multiplier. Uh, Sandy, I 110% agree with you. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm not trying to like recreate the wheel here either, but you know, when we talk about the task force that I had the, had the honor to be a part of in Orange County and help put together, you know, one of the first things I realized that we had so many different people with so many different competing agendas from so many different agencies. And every time we sat and talked for the first few months, I noticed that, you know, it was almost, and I don't, I don't mean this in a negative way, but everyone wanted to make sure their voice was heard. So there was almost a one-upmanship in some degree as far as, well, was prosecution more important? Is, is investigation more important? Is victim services more important? Is legal services more important? Is outreach more important? And so, we, you know, I, I saw this kind of tension building because everyone agreed that their agendas were important and they acknowledged other people's, but again, they're representatives of an, of an organization or an agency and they were there for a purpose. So I, I suggested at the time, and we are lucky enough that everyone agreed, obviously that we adopt that federal model of that perspective. And while I, you know, and I don't take credit for the, for the Orange County Task Force, moving forward, you know, currently and how, what they're doing and they're doing great work and great deeds and I, and I praise them continually. But what I do take a little bit of credit for, if I could, is the idea that by adopting that federal model from the outset and trying to put everyone else's agendas kind of second to that federal model that allowed us a common vocabulary, allowed us a common goal set, allowed us a common set of um, values, 
with regards to victim-centered trauma-informed approach that while not so comfortable for law enforcement to embrace all the time because we're about putting folks in jail or doing criminal investigations, uh, it did allow for all the different participants to agree to it and to carry the task force forward based on that model. And when the enhanced model came out in 2009, 2010 from the feds, we rapidly embraced that as well. Actually, we had a a second grant as a result of that. We were very fortunate that way, very blessed that way. And it was, but it was because we had adopted that belief that that four P's model, that four P perspective, that, that federal United Nations, you know, perspective was the overarching way we were going to collaborate and make things work. And I honestly say that I, I can say that that model is easily applicable to any type of investigation, or any type of collaboration you're doing on a multi-sector type of deal. And I think the more people dedicate themselves to that from a, uh, collaboration perspective, the more of a chance they have of sustaining their task forces through the challenges, the ethical challenges, through the moral challenges, through the rough roads they're going to have along the way when it comes to funding, social pressures, peer pressures, you know, agency head pressures that come along the way, or different personalities that get introduced to the task force due to rotation and things like that. Well, I'm just um, full of things to contemplate and think about and respond to uh, as we wind up this third um, episode in this series and understanding the, the a really concrete look at, the, at an overview of ethics and how you arrive at developing a code of ethics, the um, perspective on ethical decision-making models and how I can implement that in my own agency, in my own organization, in my own interactions with with other um, collaborators in the same field. And I think much of what we're talking about transfers very easily um, to an international stage as well. And we have students in this course uh, in Romania. So this will be just as applicable because it's so foundational to the process. And then people uh, work on alignment and the details in the frame of their own cultural context. And I think um, we'll have to come back and revisit this at some point to to um, assess, um, wait a minute, I remember the word, to measure and modify. No, I didn't get it quite right, but I'm still learning those seven steps. What's the seventh one? You're making it hard for me. Uh, it's basically monitor and modify. Monitor and modify as as we um, build our, our competencies in addressing the dilemmas that collaboration bring to the table. And I really feel that um, the individual, we have to start there before we can all get around the table. And I appreciate you saying that. I agree. I think, and the thing from a, well, the one thing we really didn't talk about that much when we're talking, again, this is like the thousand foot view on ethics or 10,000 foot view on ethics and, and human trafficking. But the thing that I, I know that we discussed off the audio <laughs> was yeah. the idea of, you know, kind of an ethical relativism or, you know, different cultures mm. have different priorities. And, you know, do we adjust our perspectives to adjust to those cultures? And I, you know, am an advocate of not doing so. I believe more in the universal ethical approach to decision making universal ethic of character and the moral codes that we have 
And I also think there's a universal way we can approach human trafficking that this United Nations 4P and federal 4P model, enhanced model, allow us to perpetuate across cultural and country lines. So if you, well, and I know we are trying to make this as universal as we can for everybody, and I know there are other issues that come into play when it comes to rule of law and to social issues and, you know, conflict and access to resources and the legal system that currently is available and the, the options people have for services. I know all of those are in play. I'm not trying to minimize any of them, but I think this overall perspective really does take away a lot of the focus and the goal setting that needs to be done as an organization and says folks on focuses on people creating relationships, creating integrative groups to coordinate those conversations and those aims so that everyone can start working together and jump that whole two to three year cycle that I had to go through when I first started at Task Force and get things moving, hit, hit the ground running, if you will, right away, regardless of what culture you come from, regardless of what society you come from, regardless of what country you're in. Because I know, for instance, in Europe, I mean, they're always or, uh, HT organizations, human trafficking organizations, criminal organizations that are crossing country lines constantly. And so to get lost in your culture, especially in Europe, where it's happening, you know, these these travesties are happening across international lines all the time, you can't afford to do it. You really have to take a step above that and focus on how you're going to get together and make it work, not just within your county or your state or your city, but also within your region and within your country and between countries as well. And that that concept of of cultural relativism uh, from the perspective of the Global Center for Women and Justice, uh, we often argue that how women are treated in your culture uh, that justifies um, uh, abuse or or, uh, beating, um, any of those kinds of, of practices in domestic violence and practices that harm girls and women, uh, that's not something that we're purporting in 2016 from the Global Center for Women and Justice. We want to go the same direction you just did at the national and the international level, and the UN um, uh, set that standard of universal ethics with treating women in 1943. So it's not an argument that continues. It's already been established and aligning with that in our international trainings, such as you've referenced in Italy and Argentina and Romania, and we, we're going to be in Greece and a couple other places in the next few months. Those are critical to having a conversation where we all find common value and ethics at the table. And I can't thank you enough. Our time is up. I see Dave waving at me over here. And so I'm going to turn it back to him. Thank you so much, um, Chief Marsh. Well, Derek, thank you so much again for your wisdom, for your uh, your law enforcement service, but also just the incredible service you bring into our students here at Vanguard University. I know uh, 
I've, I've learned a lot today just listening to both of you speak, and I know our students are going to take a ton away from this course, so I'm really excited to see it come together. And uh, Sandy, you know, for, for those who may not even be um, thinking about the course, uh, you know, there's another really key way for people to get involved and to really study the issues coming up, and that's in the Ensure Justice Conference coming up oh, uh, later right. on this year. And so uh, as we close, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the conference and uh, uh, the dates that they're coming up here in uh, early 2017. Our theme for Insured Justice is build a strong child. Of those four Ps that we talked about today, prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnership, prevention has perhaps had the least attention addressed to it. So our focus will be on building resilient kids who are not as vulnerable to being trafficked. That's March 3rd and 4th in sunny California. Uh, when you go on our website, we can even help you with a Vanguard special rate at local hotels. Excellent. Thanks, Sandy, for all the information. I hope you will check that out. Um, and Sandy, what's the website for the conference? Is it the same as the... Uh you can come to go to vanguard.edu forward slash gcwj or you can go to insurejustice.com you can good. call nadia hernandez the registrar for the conference at 714-966-6360 and you can always email us at gcwj at vanguard.edu Sandy, thank you. Derek, thank you. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again for our next conversation in two weeks. Take care, everyone.